Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Journey onward past the hill crest lie for thee the plains of peace. Delightful May! Simply extraordinary! Oh, <laughs> Bertie, stop being such a flatterer. Flatterer? Amy, am I flattering my dearest sister when I say she is extraordinary? No, dear. There you have it, May. Extraordinary. Robert, you're embarrassing her. Embarrassing? Is it wrong to say things that are kind, darling wife? Of course not, Bert, but I think I shall go to bed. But nothing. We will have another song. Or another 12. Or another 15. Do you insist on making a fool of yourself tonight, Bert? Father, you wound me. You made me the fool, after all. Oh, ask your darling wife who made who the fool. Father! He has a point, dear. I mean, we barely avoided a scandal. Mother, not you too. Maybe if you wouldn't drink so much, then the company would be on more solid footing. That does it, you old relic! Stop it! All of you, stop it! Is this how we want to spend our Sunday night? Of course not. Sorry, May. It's all right, Bert. I would rather not retire on such a note. May, dearest, may we have one more song? Okay, Mother. You win, Bertie. You win. One last song it is. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we're telling the story of May Fosberg, a 24-year-old woman who was shot dead in her family's home in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. We're covering her death the resulting investigation and trial, and the repercussions this case had for the Fosberg family and the community of Pittsfield. August 20th, 1900, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. The small industrial city in the center of Berkshire County, known colloquially as the Berkshires, was shaken to the core by an unprecedented crime. At 1.30 a.m., a frightened neighbor rushed to the closest patrolman he could find. Nearby, newsboy Charlie Poole listened in to the report. He suddenly froze. The neighbor said someone was murdered. As the patrolman blew the town's fire alarm whistle and hurried to find any other police nearby, 
Charlie ran as fast as he could to alert the local paper. They would pay good money for this type of scoop. Meanwhile, police rushed to the site of the crime, the Fosberg house. The sizable home was owned by Robert L. Fosberg, a 58-year-old wealthy industrialist. He lived there with his wife Esther and his son, 27-year-old Robert Fosberg Jr., or Bert. They also co-owned the family business, R. L. Fosberg and Son Construction Company. Robert was the portrait of a late 19th century businessman with his tall frame, balding head, and thick mustache. So it was a shock to see that his left eye was swollen shut from a facial wound. His son, a handsome, clean-shaven gentleman with thin cheeks, was also bruised on his face. Both seemed hastily dressed. Ignoring their own injuries, father and son reported a break-in by three individuals who had killed one of the members of the family. But when police attempted to enter the crime scene, they were blocked by Robert Sr. Confused as to why he wouldn't let them in, the officers tried to reason with the distressed family. At 2.30 a.m., Dr. Walter Schofield arrived at the house. The family quickly ushered him up the stairs and allowed him to enter the crime scene. Upstairs, there were clear signs of a violent struggle, broken furniture and a screen window bent from the inside. But the most shocking was a body covered in a sheet, 24-year-old Mae Fosberg. Robert's daughter and Bert's younger sister had been shot through the heart at what appeared to be point-blank range. Her nightdress was not only stained by blood, but by gunpowder. They pronounced her dead at the scene, having expired before anyone could have arrived to her aid. As Dr. Schofield examined the body, the police prepared to hunt down the perpetrators. The siren from the fire station continued to blare, now summoning the area's able-bodied men. When the sleepy men of Pittsfield hurried towards the sounding alarm, they expected to see the town center on fire. Instead, they were met by 45-year-old police chief John Nicholson, standing in the town center. The thin man stared over his large, pointed mustache as he took a deep breath. He normally was a quieter man who relied on his presence and rank to pull attention, but now, he needed to brief the entire town on their task. Thank you for answering the call, gentlemen. There are killers on the loose in town. They broke into the Fosberg house on Woodlawn and Tyler and killed one of the family members. We need to catch them before they escape. How many are there, Chief? We're looking for three burglars. Mr. Fry and Mr. Lloyd will be leading the search parties. Any description? According to Robert and Bert, they were masked pillowcases over their heads, and one was wearing a tan suit. They couldn't have gone far, though. Another one of the burglars lost a shoe in the scuffle. Two ghosts and Cinderella. Gotcha, sir. Gentlemen, a young woman has been murdered, so knock off the jokes. Time is of the essence. Split up and block off all the exits to the town. We'll close in and cut them off. Yes, sir. Police Chief John Nicholson quickly organized the hundreds of men now gathered in the town square into search parties. They were determined to find these three murderers one way or another. That very night, they began the most comprehensive manhunt in the history of the Berkshires. In the morning, a few hours later, Chief Nicholson put an ad in the paper, calling for every able-bodied man in the area to volunteer to find and capture the murderers. 
All of Pittsfield was hell-bent on bringing May Fosberg's murderers to justice. The papers immediately capitalized on the intrigue of the case, referring to it as the crime of the century. And to help the investigation along, the mayor of Pittsfield posted a $1,500 reward for the successful capture of the three intruders, an amount that comes to roughly $46,000 today. Meanwhile, at the Fossberg house, May's body was taken by the coroner, and Robert and Bert had their wounds seen too. Robert had sustained a possible cracked rib, and Bert had a neck contusion. But with a family member murdered, neither paid much attention to their own pain. All they cared about was bringing her killers to justice. Meanwhile, the Fossberg family made preparations for May's funeral. They were all shocked beyond belief. She'd never made enemies with anyone. Her killing was inconceivable. Over the days of August 22nd and 23rd, the manhunt expanded. Hundreds upon hundreds joined, not only from Pittsfield, but also from neighboring towns and counties. The scope widened to the borders of Vermont and New York, and soon the authorities ran out of guns and horses to supply to the volunteers. During these two days, volunteers and police interviewed every single person in the immediate vicinity, no matter how tenuous their possible connection to the murder. This was the largest manhunt that had ever been launched in the history of the Berkshires. In spite of this, the police had nothing to show for it save for a lost sock, a pillowcase, and a shoe. The murderers, it appeared, had vanished into thin air. As the police went through the process of clearing each of the many tramps and vagrants that were apprehended by the search, Chief Nicholson redirected his attention from finding the vanished fugitives to investigating the crime itself. As he observed the facts from the evening of the murder, Nicholson realized that something didn't add up. That night, there had been eight people at the house, including the eventual victim. There were May's parents, Robert Sr. and Esther. There was also her brother and his wife, Bert and Amy. Also her younger siblings, Beatrice and James. There was also a guest, Bertha Sheldon. Each one of their descriptions of the masked intruders varied wildly. Though the neighbors heard gunshots, they never saw anyone flee from the house. The thieves had supposedly entered the Fossberg home via a kitchen bedroom window that could not be opened more than 11 inches, an incredibly thin gap for three grown men to squeeze through. Even more puzzling was the fact that the only items taken from the house were a pillowcase, supposedly used as a mask, and a pair of Bert's trousers. Chief Nicholson couldn't help but wonder, why didn't they attempt to take any of the jewelry lying in plain sight on the bureau? Also, the solitary cloth-top shoe supposedly left behind by the fleeing men matched a pair that the elder Robert Fosberg had previously purchased in New York. And then there was the revolver found at the foot of Robert Fosberg's bed that he claimed he'd knocked out of the robber's hands. But it was not of the same caliber of bullet that caused May's death. And a personal firearm of Bert's, generally kept in a dresser, was missing. And perhaps most damningly, why did the family forbid anyone from entering the crime scene for more than a half an hour? As he evaluated the evidence and witness testimony, Chief Nicholson began to form a theory that made more sense to him than a trio of vanishing burglars. 
This doesn't add up. Problem, Chief? Maybe. Tell me this, Mr. Fry. Which would be worse? If your family was attacked by strangers and one of you was killed? Or if the killing was a tragic accident that brought attention to your family's secrets? This about the Fosberg girl? Answer the question, George. It almost would be better if it was a break-in, I guess. If it was an accident, I would want to protect my family, even if that meant obscuring the facts. I agree. Get the district attorney on the line, Mr. Fry. Yes, sir. Nicholson called up the Berkshire County District Attorney, Charles Gardner. After listening to the details of the case, Gardner agreed with Nicholson's theory. He decided that there was more than enough evidence to suggest that the pillowcase robbers were a fiction invented by the family to protect one of their own. Based on Nicholson's investigation, all signs seemed to point to Bert. He and his father often quarreled. He was consistently reported as the one fighting the burglars when May was shot, and his missing gun was the same caliber as the bullet that killed May. There was enough evidence and probable cause to raise suspicion. On January 17, 1901, nearly five months after the murder of May Fosberg, the state of Massachusetts indicted and arrested her brother, Bert Fosberg, for the charge of manslaughter. When we return, the trial of Bert Fosberg begins, and the facts surrounding his sister's death become murkier. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. On August 20th, 1900, 24-year-old Mae Fosberg was shot to death in her family's house. Her brother and father claimed that they had fought off three intruders who had killed her in the struggle. Now the police had a new theory as to what happened that fateful August morning. 45-year-old police chief John Nicholson believed that the father and son had gotten into a fight that night that had gotten out of hand, and that May was killed when she tried to intervene between them. Afterward, the family invented the three burglars in an attempt to avert a scandal. But if that was the Fosberg's aim, they had failed miserably. Now their eldest Fosberg's son and the co-owner of the family business was awaiting bail and gossip engulfed Pittsfield drawing national attention. The case was already high profile due to the sensational nature of the crime and the vanishing burglars in pillowcase masks. Nicholson had attempted to conduct his investigation with the utmost secrecy and sensitivity, but Bert's arrest caused the case to explode. People both in the town and across the nation defended Bert's character. 
They argued that Nicholson was acting rashly and thoughtlessly, inflicting undue damage to an already grieving family. However, others defended the police chief. He bore no ill will against the Fosbergs. He merely wanted to do his job and uncover the truth. The trial was set for the following July, 11 months after May's death. Meanwhile, Bert was released from prison on bail and returned to work with his father at the construction company. The family consistently supported Bert's innocence. Robert Sr. insisted that Bert's guilt was invented by some unknown party who had it out for the Fosbergs. The winter and spring flew by as the continued media circus enveloped Pittsfield. Both local and out-of-town reporters commented on the comings and goings of lawyers, witnesses, and government officials, as well as the steady buildup to the heavily anticipated trial. On July 18, 1901, the trial of Robert Burt Fosberg began, with Judge Stevens presiding. The district attorney of Berkshire County had taken sick shortly before the proceedings were scheduled to commence, so the DA of Hampshire County, John Chester Hammond, led the prosecution in his place. The defense was led by Herbert C. Joyner. The court was enraptured as Hammond began his opening statement. The court recognizes Mr. Hammond. Thank you, Your Honor. The state of Massachusetts' objective is to dismantle this elaborate fiction constructed by the defendant's family. It also means to prove that Bert Fosberg killed his sister in the early hours of August 20th, 1900. There were no pillowcase burglars. There was no break-in. The guilt in this case remains entirely within the four walls of that house, involving those poor eight individuals. Bert's wife had her nightgown shredded down the entire front, and furniture in several rooms was broken and overturned in a most significant manner. Were the father and son scrapping when the pistol shot was fired? As to the nature of this scrap, we can only speculate. Your Honor, gentlemen of the jury, if the women were not involved in the chaos, why did the defendant's wife and mother both sustain minor injury? And why did the defendant and his wife separate on the night of the killing? If the girl was killed through the angry carelessness on the part of her brother, or during the excitement of a family quarrel, he is guilty. After Hammond's opening argument, the courtroom was abuzz. Then, the trial temporarily adjourned in order to lead the jury to the Fosberg family home. There, the jurors observed the scene of the crime firsthand. The geography of the second floor, Hammond argued, was essential to understanding the statements made by the prosecution. The jury needed to understand where each of the family members and supposed robbers were standing when May was shot. For instance, Robert Fosberg claimed in his testimony that the robbers fired two shots as he climbed through the window. However, the prosecution argued that the proximity of May's chest wound disproved this. By the afternoon, the jury had reconvened at the courthouse. Hammond called to the stand Dr. Franklin Kittredge Paddock, the medical examiner of Berkshire County, who had examined May's body. Do you swear that the testimony you will give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. I do. 
How long have you been practicing medicine, Dr. Paddock? Come again? How long have you been practicing medicine? 37 years. And how long have you been the medical examiner in Berkshire County? 20 years. What was the cause of Miss Fosberg's death on the morning of the 20th? A 32 caliber bullet had pierced her chest, damaged her heart and her left lung. Is this the nightgown of the victim? Doctor. Yes. Oh, oh, I apologize. My health is not what it used to be. Do you wish to be excused, sir? No, I'll go on. It's nothing, I have this all the time. Thank you, doctor. Though in poor health, the doctor managed to give most of his testimony. He had spoken to the younger Fosbergs, James, 22, and Beatrice, 14, the night of May's death. Though both of them now supported the family's theory, that night they stated that they didn't see any intruders. When the proceedings continued the next day on July 19, 1901, the defense of Bert Fosberg took yet another hit. Judge Stevens had ruled in favor of the prosecution's motion to test the distance at which May was shot. Conducted by the medical examiners as well as the general of the Massachusetts State Police, the tests were performed that very day. The examiners put six squares of cut cloth from May's gown on a barn wall. They then fired at them at a distance of four inches, six inches, eight inches, one foot, two feet, and four feet. They used a gun of the same make as Bert's missing revolver. That afternoon, the results of the gunpowder tests returned. The gunshot that ended May's life could not have been fired from any farther away than eight inches from her breast. This completely contradicted the family's insistence that she had been shot from feet away. And if the intruders were so close, how did they vanish before the women entered the hallway? Hammond was feeling positive about the case. His arguments, witnesses, and evidence so far had made easy work of the defense. But he had not yet produced evidence that elevated Nicholson's theory to more than supposition. As the cross-examinations wore on, details were picked apart, from how light it was that night to who exactly was standing where, and whether Bert or Beatrice were standing behind May as she fell. July 23, 1901, was the fourth day of the trial. Hammond called police chief John Nicholson to testify. He maintained his calm demeanor and spoke so softly that the entire courtroom hushed to hear the man's testimony. When you and your men arrived at the scene of the crime, what did the defendant tell you of the burglary? He told me that he and his wife, Amy, were roused from slumber by a scuffling sound that they thought was rats. By the time he left his bedroom to investigate, the robbers had already shot May. Bert claimed he caught her as she fell, before a man struck him from behind, and he grappled with them before they eventually made their escape. What about the gun found at the foot of the bed? According to Mr. Fosberg, he had awoken to see a man standing over his bed and struck him on the arm out of reflex, disarming him. The gun landed there at the foot of the bed. It does not belong to the family. Thank you, Mr. Nicholson. Unexpectedly, that same afternoon, Hammond rested the state's case 
in spite of the fact that the prosecution still had more witnesses scheduled to speak. It was now the defense's turn to hit back. Defense attorney Herbert C. Joyner represented Bert Fosberg. He was a well-respected attorney of 63, a veteran of the Civil War, and had even served in the Massachusetts State Senate for six years. Herbert now opened the fifth day of the trial in an unexpected way. Mr. Joyner? Thank you, Your Honor. Gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution has made so much talk of facts or relying so heavily on interpretation. The sum total of their case rests on a very specific detail, the gun. The stolen 32 caliber pistol they claim was used to end the life of my client's sister. We don't even know that this was the gun used for the crime. Objection! Speculative. Overruled. My client is the co-chair with his father of a large company. They have in their employ 270 men. Amongst them, There are many non-English speaking workers who are aware that large sums of money are transferred from their employer's office to the bank. My client has the right to own a gun to protect himself and his family should someone get it into their head to make a move for their fortune. And judging from the events of that night, he was more than right to take this precaution. Joyner continued to argue that it would be no incredible feat for the culprits to have vanished into the crowds that gathered outside the Fosberg house that morning during all the chaos. With this established, the defense continued to build their case, bringing their own series of witnesses, company men, and eventually the family themselves. Mr. Robert L. Fosberg, can you describe what happened in the early morning hours of August 20th, 1900? My wife, Esther awoke me and said she heard something. I saw a light in the hallway and knew something was amiss. Then a pair of burglars came into our room, one with a revolver in hand. I leapt to my feet, struck him in the arm, which caused him to drop the pistol. The other man then hit me in the head with a sandbag, which caused your left eye to swell shut. I did not notice at the time. When I came to my senses, I rushed to my family's aid. Beatrice was holding May just outside her bedroom. She cried out, May is hurt. We all gathered and I rushed to the window yelling, Murder! We need help! Did you and your son have any reason to quarrel? If we were constantly at each other's throats, as Mr. Nicholson suggests, it would be incredibly difficult to run a family business together. The evening before the break-in, there was no disagreement? It was a normal Sunday evening. We had all finished dinner, and Beatrice played the piano as May sang hymns. What was the final hymn that May sang? The Plains of Peace. Excuse me. After the patriarch testified, the defense brought other people to the stand, including James and Beatrice. The picture the family painted in their respective testimonies was in stark contrast to the one that the prosecution had created. Each witness described the night preceding the murder as a delightful Sunday evening where the seven family members and one guest sat about, sang hymns, and enjoyed each other's company. And this was the exact opposite of the prosecution's portrayal, a short-tempered, fractured portrait of the family. The defense's depiction played more into the Fosberg's public image. Attorney Herbert Joyner argued that though there were discrepancies in the accounts of the break-in, It could all be explained by the emotional distress of the family. Finally, on July 26, 1901, 
Both sides prepared to render their closing arguments. That day, the courtroom was packed, filled with throngs of spectators, eager for the resolution to the almost year-long tension. As people chattered in the gallery and the lawyers went through their papers, Bert and his parents were thoroughly anxious as the wait dragged on. Now, Bertie, do not worry. We're almost through this. Thank you, Mother. But you would worry too if for half a year you had to live as the man who killed your sister. I know you didn't. All your friends know you didn't. Listen to your mother. I am not a child, Father. You could have fooled me. Let the law take its course. And if its course is to destroy me and ruin our family? It's already ruined the family. Innocent or not, you know how long this stain will last on us? Do you know what this is going to do to the business? We've operated well enough when I was on parole. Barely. Now we'll have to start from scratch. We'll manage. People shouldn't mind working for an innocent man. All rise. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen of the jury, during the last six days, we have listened to a painful recital of one of the saddest tragedies ever presented to a jury. This case has been conducted fairly by both the prosecution and the defense. Chief Nicholson did his civic duty in fully examining the facts presented to him, free of any bias or malice toward the family. Now, a motion has been made that this case be taken from the jury. Mr. Fosberg, please stand. Mr. Foreman, what is your verdict? We, the jury, find Mr. Robert S. Fosberg on the charge of manslaughter not guilty. Bert Fosberg collapsed, weeping freely. After half a year of agony, he was finally free. Chief Nicholson sat back in his chair. If the court was right and Bert was innocent, then May Fosberg's real killer was still at large. Did they just waste six months letting a murderer escape? Coming up, we learn the consequences of the verdict and what happened to those involved with the case. And now, back to our story. In January of 1901, the government indicted 28-year-old Bert Fosberg for the accidental killing of his sister, May. After an eight-day trial, Bert was acquitted on July 26, 1901. The government had not supplied enough proof to determine that Bert was guilty of the killing. However, the consequences of this year-long sequence of tragedy, hearsay, and scandal would last far beyond the trial's conclusion. There are no records of how much further the family pursued the case following the verdict, but May's death and the subsequent trial seem to have caused an unfixable rift between the Fosbergs and Pittsfield. For instance, the family never forgave Chief Nicholson for his role in the trial. From their perspective, he was the one who had put their family through hell without ever apologizing or admitting he was wrong. Yes? Mr. Nicholson? Mrs. Fosberg, congratulations again on the verdict. How can I help you? There are new theories circulating about the murderer of my daughter. I'm sure there are, ma'am. 
I would like to hear them. There were active gangs in New England around the time of our break-in. We dismissed other such theories in court, ma'am. If you have new evidence... Well, why don't you do something about it instead of walking around with your tail between your legs? You were wrong. Does May not deserve justice after you spent half a year tormenting my family? The state was satisfied by the ruling, ma'am. So therefore, I am too. If you hear of any credible theories, my door is always open. If this is what justice looks like in Pittsfield, I want nothing to do with it. <sighs> Once the verdict was passed, people leapt back to the original theory that burglars had shot May during a break-in. It was almost as if there had never been any doubt of Bert's innocence. Many newspapers, including the New York Times, heavily criticized Police Chief John Nicholson for launching an indictment on what they considered flimsy evidence. But others defended Nicholson's actions, claiming he was doing what he thought was right. Even the judge and members of the court defended the chief of police. Once the media circus ended, the visiting reporters went home. Heading back to the city? It's that time. Case closed and all that. What a dramatic ending, huh? You said it. Hey, do you think they'll ever find who did it? Maybe, but who cares? These dumb burglars will get themselves caught some other way if this is the kind of mistake they make. <laughs> you ain't kidding. They broke in, failed to get the jewelry, killed a woman by accident, and left? Come on. Escaping into a crowd by the skin of their teeth. Damn shame. You kind of wish with all the hubbub going on around here that the killers would try a little harder, you know? Yeah. It feels like we put in more effort than they did. <laughs> you ain't kidding. Though Nicholson publicly stated that he was satisfied with the court's ruling, he never investigated any further into finding the supposed intruders. Since some considered the case he made against Burt to be insubstantial, Nicholson faced harsh criticism from many, including the New York Times. And of course, the Fossbergs were icy toward him ever after. However, among most of the residents of Pittsfield, his popularity never lessened. Nicholson even went on to serve Berkshire County as High Sheriff, a position he held until his death in 1932. Because the case received nationwide attention for years after, many outsiders came forward with tips. One of these theories even found its way to the desk of Captain Titus at the New York Police Department. Hello, ma'am. Hello. Is this the right? Yes, this is the right office. Come in, have a seat. Captain Titus, nice to meet you. Olive Handyside. How can I help you, Miss Handyside? I need to report a, well, a fella I've been seeing. Name's William Gray. All right, what did he do? I'm not sure, but he claims to be laying low from a robbery. Uh-huh. Mr. Titus, have you been following the Fossberg case? Sure. You don't mean... Yes. He said he robbed a place and fired a shot. I think he might have killed that woman. Can you get him here? Yes. Yes, I think I can. In the instance of William Gray, his girlfriend, Olive, had taken it into her own hands to report him to the police trying to crack the popular mystery. However, Gray sent an affidavit directly to Chief Nicholson, denying her claims. In it, he explained, 
She was a woman who worshipped a man who appeared to be desperate. And as I was getting money from her, I wanted to appear to be desperate, and I told her I had committed a robbery and fired a shot. There is absolutely no truth to the statements that I made to her. Due to the implausibility of the statements, Nicholson dismissed the tip, and nobody else was ever charged for the murder of May Fosberg. Meanwhile, the entire Fosberg family left Pittsfield and scattered to various locations throughout the country. The family business, R.L. Fosberg & Son Construction Company, relocated to Maynard, Massachusetts. In the 1910 census, Robert Fosberg Sr. was listed as a stockbroker in New York City, where his son James was living. It was also where his daughter Esther had settled. Bert and Amy Fosberg had a daughter in New Hampshire in 1903, whom they named Helen May Fosberg. Six years later, however, Amy filed for divorce, citing the primary reason as cruelty. The divorce was never finalized, and Bert died in Long Beach, California in 1916 at 44 years old. The cause of death was cirrhosis of the liver, a condition attributed to alcohol abuse. Is the charge of cruelty retroactive proof that there was a darker side to Bert Fosberg? Did the struggle that ended in May's death begin as a domestic fight between him and his wife? Well, that could explain Amy's torn nightshirt. With all of that said, I do believe that Bert, or one of the members of the Fosberg family, was responsible. There were far too many convenient lapses in fact between testimonies. An accidental manslaughter would have been an ugly enough stain on the family's reputation to motivate a cover-up. Yeah, I agree. And the burglar's escape was too improbable with such a massive manhunt that caught so many unrelated people. All that said, given the way the case quickly developed into a he-said-she-said said scenario, with the burden of proof placed on the prosecution, the verdict isn't surprising. The prosecution never had a smoking gun that made their theories more valid than those of the accused. In fact, police chief John Nicholson could never explain where the mystery revolver on the foot of Robert Sr.'s bed came from. It was easy for the family to simply claim it wasn't theirs, but the gun's true ownership was never determined. In a modern case, forensic science could have pointed us in the correct direction. The shoe might have been correctly identified, the gun dusted for fingerprints. Regardless of the evidence, May Fosberg's murder turned into more of a family drama than a murder investigation. Initially, when the town thought the culprits were outsiders, Pittsfield banded together to bring them to justice. But as soon as the theory emerged that the Fosbergs, one of their own, may have been responsible, Lines were drawn and sides were taken. That sensationalism captured the public imagination. While legal officials fought against it to dig to the truth, they never found out what exactly happened. And this is a testament to the legal process. A conviction needs certainty. There was none here. Therefore, Bert deserved to go free. Nicholson surmised, but couldn't prove, that May's murder was an accident. In this theory, there are no loose ends, just a regretful man covering up the worst mistake of his life. Bert Fosberg, though he may have been the perpetrator of an accidental manslaughter, is a perfect example of innocent until proven guilty.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on May Fosberg, amongst the many sources we used, we found Scandal in the Berkshires by Frank Leskovitz extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unsolved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, Kathleen Nielsen, Harris Markson, and Jack Shulruff. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.